Well, good morning. It's great that everybody on my maturity level just left, so that's awesome. Uh, if you've never seen me before, my name is Runks Runkles. I was a guest speaker for D-Now. I've been here a hundred times. I'm an old friend of Ed's, uh, and uh, I just want to say this is, this is a sad day in the state of your church, and that this is the last Sunday that Ed is doing a D-Now as your youth pastor. It's a sad day that he's no longer your youth pastor, but it's even a sadder day that Ed Lowe is now your pastor. So y'all have gone from having one of the most seasoned, experienced, mature youth pastors in America to having one of the most inexperienced, immature idiots as your pastor. So I applaud you, man. This guy, <laughs> this guy's been the pastor of this church for years. He just didn't have the title, man. This guy, I love it. Y'all did great. I'm glad he's finally the pastor. I really think y'all are going to blow up, man. Oh, y'all, there's... There's so many people in this community that need the Lord, and this church ought to be packed out. Y'all ought to have three services. I hope you have three services so he has to preach three times every Sunday. So, yeah. Anyway, man, it's great to be back with you. It's great to have my wife, Joanna, with me today. So glad y'all finally get to meet her. She's, uh, it's kind of weird when she's here when I preach because she expects me to go home and live this out. I preach y'all. I just leave. So, anyway, we had a great weekend with your students. We had a good time, man. And uh, I'm excited to wrap this thing up for you this morning. So if y'all have your Bibles this morning... Turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at that in just a minute. It's a very familiar passage probably to most of you. Story of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15. So, I, uh, um, let me start out by asking this question. How many of you, students, adults, all of you, how many of you uh, women, girls, how many of you have a brother? Raise your hand. Okay, y'all are not going to like this story a whole lot. Okay? How many of you guys... Kids, adults, how many of you guys have a sister? Raise your hand. Y'all are going to love it, okay? All right? Because you know if you got a sister, you know how much fun it is to jack with your sister. You know what I'm saying? All right? That's like in the brother code. If you have a sister, you got to jack with her. That's just the way it is. And I have a sister, okay? Her name is Delane. So I wish y'all could meet Delane because y'all think I have a lot of energy. You think I'm loud and intense. She makes me look like I'm taking a nap, okay? All right? She is intense. She's wired up. She's six feet tall. She's got red hair. People used to think we were twins. I'm telling you, Delane is me in a skirt. That's who she is, all right? I mean, we're the same person. She is super intense. She's a ton of fun. But she has an edge to her, man, that just like, like little things drive her crazy, all right? Just little things you do drive her nuts, which as a big brother... That's the greatest quality you could ever ask for in your sister, okay? All right, like for example, all right, I'm the kind of person, I got ADD, I'm always playing with stuff, I am always have something in my hand, I'm always making, doing something, just always doing something with my hands, okay? So I'm having a conversation with Delane, and I'm playing with this piece of paper, at some point she's going to freak out, all right? At some point she's going to be like doing, runks, stop, give me that paper, you're driving me crazy, all right? Well, that's like saying sick them to a dog, you know what I'm saying? If she says that, then I'm just going to start going crazy, just widening this thing up, just going all kinds of nuts, throwing it in her face, whatever I got to do. I mean, I love to mess with her, especially when we were kids, all right? I used to do some crazy stuff to mess with the lane. One of my favorite things to do, and I'm not advocating for this, I'm not saying it's a great idea, but this is an awesome trick to play on your sister, all right? Okay, I used to get a tennis ball, I put it in the end of a tube sock, and I would use it to chase around and just smack her with it, okay? All right? And that's mean, I know, but it's your sister. You got to do it, right? And it was one of my favorite things I could chase. And the best thing about it was, man, never left a mark. And the greatest thing was, if she, like, took off running across the backyard, you could go like David and Goliath on her. It was awesome, all right? So this one morning, my mom's at the, going to the grocery store or something, whatever, me and Delaney are home alone. 
and y'all, it's on, all right? I got my tennis ball, my tube sock. I'm chasing Delane all over the house, man. We're having a blast, right? Well, I'm having a blast. Anyway, we get to the kitchen, man, and I'm bent over by the table just laughing my head off, just dying, all right? Well, Delane, she sees this as an opportunity, all right? So she reaches back like all the way to Kansas, y'all, takes a running start across the kitchen, runs up, and she comes up to me, and she's like, bam, and she jacks me right in the face, okay? All right, and I was off balance. I didn't expect it, and she knocked me up over. I came off my feet and landed on top of the table. I mean, she bloodied my nose, landed on the table. The funny thing about that is, is before my back landed on the table, I heard the bathroom door lock on the other end of the house, okay? All right? I mean, she's like, bam, dude, gone, out of there, right? So I get my tennis ball, my tube sock. I wipe the blood and the tears, tears because I was laughing, all right? Not because I was crying. Get my tennis ball, my tube sock. I go down the hall. I come up to the bathroom door, and I'm like, ding, ding, ding. Ding, 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 come out and play. Ding, ding, ding. She's like, I ain't coming out there. You're going to hit me. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to hit you. I'm going to bash your brains in. Ding, 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 ding. Dude, she stayed in the bathroom till lunchtime, all right, when my mom and dad and my mom got home. And, dude, when my mom got home, she was not at all happy with what was going on here, all right? And she said the most dreaded words you could ever say when I was a kid at my house. You wait until your father gets home, okay? All right? Now, listen, my dad is old school, okay? I mean, old school. He was a man who was not afraid to bring the wood. You know what I'm saying? I didn't get timeouts, all right, or grounded. I got whippings, okay? All right? And people today are so weird about people spanking their kids. I'm telling you, it's just people freak out. I mean, my parents were never abusive about it. If I didn't get spankings, I would be in prison, okay? I was a hard-headed, loud-mouthed punk, all right? My parents were never abusive. My dad would always sit me down and tell me what I'd done wrong and how many swats I was going to get. Then I would get a spanking, and then he would leave me alone, be crying, be mad, and then he would always come back, tell me that he loved me, which was the worst part of the whole thing because then you can't be mad at him anymore, you know, all right? And they were old school, man. My mom used to teach school in the inner city, way back in the day when you could really jack kids up, all right, okay, before they got ISS or whatever they do now, my dad made her a canoe paddle, all right, to give spankings with. That's what I got spankings with when I was a kid, all right? I'm telling you, when I was in high school, my mom could pick me up off the ground with that. I mean, she'd be like, boom, who's your daddy? I'm like, stop saying that, all right? That hurts. It's freaking me out, okay? I'm telling you, man, my parents didn't jack around. So I knew, man, when my dad got home, I was getting a whip in, all right? And I had no intention of being there when he got home. So I popped off to my mom, and I was like, I ain't going to be here when Dad gets home because I'm running away. You know what she said? I'll help you pack, right? Yeah, I had enough of you, you punk. So I go to my backpack. I don't know why I did this, but I remember vividly what I packed. I went to my bedroom. I got my backpack. I don't know why. I packed three pairs of underwear and two pairs of socks. So no shirts, no shorts, underwear and socks. That's it. I went to the pantry to get something to eat. I opened it up, and I don't know why. You know those little, like, motel boxes of cereal, the little ones? You know what I'm saying? All right? But all we had was wheat checks, like 27 boxes of little wheat, wheat checks, like old men eat. You know what I'm saying? Wheat checks is not good at all, but I grabbed five, five or six boxes of wheat checks, stuff it in my backpack, get my backpack on, walk out the garage door. I'm walking down the driveway, and, y'all, I remember saying out loud, nobody, nobody is ever going to tell me what to do ever again. I'm a free man. 
Walk down the end of my driveway. I turn right. I walk down Cimarron, the street I lived on. Walk down Cimarron for about a half, I don't know, the rest of the end of the block. I came to the end of Cimarron, the intersection of Cimarron and I Street. I sat down on that corner, right there at that corner, Cimarron and I. You know why I sat down on that corner? Because I wasn't allowed to cross that street, okay? All right, yeah. If I cross that street, I'm probably going to get a whipping, all right? Nobody's ever going to tell me what to do again, but this is as far as I can go, right there, all right? So I sit down on the corner, Cimarron and I, man, I'm sitting there on that corner living the dream, free man, eating wheat checks, no milk, no water, just getting my fiber in, you know, whatever, and it was still horrible, all right, but I don't care. And I got ADD off the chart, man, I mean, I'm sitting there, I'm bored out of my mind, man, but I'm like, I am not going home. This is it. I'm going to make this work. I'm never going home again. Well, it starts getting dark. I start getting bored. I get tired of wheat checks. I start getting thirsty. I'm like, dude, I would rather go home and get beat to death than sit here and eat one more wheat checks, all right? Okay? So I pack up my three pairs of socks and my two pairs of underwear and whatever wheat checks I had left, loaded up my backpack, walked down Cimarron, got to my driveway, walked in the kitchen. Right as I walked in the door, my mom was like, yeah, I figured you'd be home. Like, I figured you'd be home in time for supper. I'm like, yeah, shut up. I didn't say shut up. Because I've got a whipping. <laughs> All right? She said, but I'm glad you're home. I'm like, nowhere near as glad as I am. Because running away was not what I thought it was going to be. It was nowhere near what it was all cracked up to be, man. And I didn't come anywhere close to finding what I was looking for out there on my own. And, y'all, the same thing is true for any of us when we run away from our spiritual home. Because if we rebel against God and we go do our own thing, we never find what we're looking for. We never find any meaning or purpose or hope or satisfaction. Y'all, in fact, all we ever find out there on our own in rebellion against God is emptiness and loneliness and helplessness, hopelessness, and an ever-increasing hunger for spiritual satisfaction. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells us the story of a man who set out to find satisfaction, spiritual satisfaction, on his own terms. But he never found it until he came back home to his father. All right? And in this story, very familiar story, is the story of the prodigal son. You've been to church twice in your life. You've probably heard this sermon preached. You've probably read this story before, all right? The prodigal son is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. Because the prodigal son is probably one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel. One of the most beautiful illustrations of what Jesus has done for us. Because the father in the story represents God. The son in the story represents you and I, all right? And this story of the prodigal son is a story of redemption. It's a story of what it means to be lost and to be found, to be gone and to be saved. It's also a story about what it means to be lost. Now understand this. Listen to me, especially you students. Don't check out. I want you to hear what I'm going to say, all right? Listen to me. There is more than one way of being lost, all right? Stick with me, all right? Because you can be a Christian, a born-again, saved believer going to heaven and still experience lostness in your life, all right? Because you can be saved and be lost in guilt and shame. You can be saved and be lost in bitterness and anger. You can be lost and, I mean, be saved and be lost in loneliness and depression. You can be saved and be lost in, in some kind of an addiction or, or pornography or sex or drugs or alcohol, whatever. And obviously, you can be lost as in not being saved. And y'all, the prodigal son was lost in every way that a person can be lost. And his story is the story of a man seeking, searching for freedom from his lostness. And y'all, the first part of his story that we need to look at in order for you and I to be free from our lostness is the rebellion of the son. The rebellion 
of the Son. Look at what it says, verse, uh, verse 11, okay? Verse 11, Luke 15, chapter, verse, Luke 15, verse 11, okay? It says this, Jesus continued. Jesus is the one telling this story, okay? Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of his, your estate. So the, father divided, so the father divided his property between his two sons. Now, y'all, this request of the son for his father to divide his estate in half and give him his inheritance early is a picture of how selfish this guy is, all right? But y'all, the selfishness of the son is not the real issue. The selfishness of the son is just a symptom of a deeper problem. And that deeper problem was this overwhelming desire he had to satisfy the spiritual hunger he had in his life. And he was convinced, y'all, if he just had his father's money, he could go out on his own and satisfy this hunger on his own terms. So in outright rebellion, y'all, he basically says to his dad, give me the money. Give me the money I'm going to get one day when you're dead and gone anyway. And believe it or not, the father does it. Probably because he knows he's never going to learn his lesson any other way. So his father does it. He divides his estate, sells off half his property, gives all this money to his son, probably in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Y'all, once this guy gets the money, he's out of there, man. Verse 13 says he takes off. Verse 13 says he went to the far-off country and blew all his money through wild living. The phrase wild living in the original language literally means to indulge in sensual pleasures. Okay? It carries an idea of having no restraint regarding sin, especially sexual sin. Verse 30 makes it clear that at least part of this rebellion was sexual and says he blew a lot of his money on prostitutes. Y'all, basically, this guy went nuts. This guy went crazy, man, and he filled his life with all the junk that people today fill their lives with when they're trying to satisfy their spiritual cravings in unhealthy ways. Probably involved drugs, probably involved drinking, obviously, obviously involved materialism and pride, but it definitely involved sex. But y'all, the point of the story, the point of this verse here is not so much what he did. It's not so much what he did but where he did it. Because y'all, it doesn't say he partied in his hometown. It doesn't say he partied in the next county. It says he went to the far-off country. You know why he went to the far-off country? Because he wanted to go where nobody knew who he was. Because nobody knows who you are, or nobody knows what you're doing when you're alone. You can do whatever it is you want to do. I was a junior in high school, my English teacher, Mr. Fennell, for six weeks in the spring of my junior year, we did not have English class, not one single time. It was the craziest thing. I don't know how he did. It's so weird. I mean, he would show up, he would take roll, and he would leave. I mean, my wife's a principal, all right? I mean, I, I don't know how he got away with that. It's crazy to me that he did it. But I don't know. He was a drama teacher. I don't know if he was leaving to work on one-act play or he was a big drinker. I don't know what he was doing, but he would just disappear, all right? And, and for, after about a week of this, all the smart kids, the brainiacs, start freaking out. Like, what are we doing? we got to learn English, man. All right? And he's like, don't worry about it. You're all going to get an A, all right? But don't tell anybody and just stay in this class and be quiet about it. Well, man, I'm not going to tell anybody, okay? I get an A in English, my parents are going to do flip-flops down the street, okay? All right? I'm not telling anybody. But, y'all, there's no way in the whole wide world on earth I'm sitting in that classroom every day for an hour doing nothing, okay? So me and my buddy Wes, we started sneaking out, Okay? 
Right, in our high school, our classroom, because he was a drama teacher, was way on the far end of the building. There weren't any classes near our class, okay? And we were right next to the high school auditorium. So Wes and I started going and messing around in the high school auditorium, okay? And y'all had no idea how much fun you can have in a high school auditorium when nobody's looking, all right? Now, none of y'all do any of this stuff I'm fixing to tell you, okay? Some of you guys are going to want to try it, but I'm telling you, I should be dead, because of the stuff we did, all right? The first thing we did, we got in the auditorium. We figured it was just an old school auditorium, okay? Huge, big room, big room, like the size of this room, huge, okay? Had the, had the full balcony in the back, had the, all the backdrops and all the curtains and all that stuff up there, okay? Soundstage, all that stuff. The first thing we figured out was there was a ladder backstage that went up to the top, and up at the top of that, like 60 feet above the stage, there were these rafters, okay? These I-beams, like every four feet all the way across the stage, like 60 feet up. That's where they anchored all the, 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 the curtains and backdrops and all that stuff. Well, the first thing Wes and I did is uh, we started having races across the stage up there on the I-beams, okay? Like 60 feet up, like jump from one, balance, jump like all the way across and back. Nothing between us and the stage but 60 feet of air and death, okay? All right, we were having fun. The next thing we did is we figured out that the big, huge curtains that they open up, they get these big ropes that you pull, all right? Well, those ropes are counterbalanced with these big sandbags, all right? What we figured out was is if somebody held the rope and stopped it in time, you could ride the sandbags from the top to the bottom. It was like bungee jumping on speed. It was amazing, okay? All right? It was a blast. Don't any of y'all try this, okay, because it's crazy, all right? The next thing we did, we untied one of those ropes, went up there, tied it around one of the beams, pulled it over to the sound stage and started doing rope swing Tarzan jumps across the stage, okay? All right? But none of that, that's all nothing, all right? Here's the crazy thing we did, all right? We took the rope, went up in the attic above the auditorium. We took out one of the lights, tied it around. We had six weeks with nobody watching this, right? Tied it around one of the I-beams, dropped it down in the middle of the auditorium. We were going to pull the rope over to the balcony and do Tarzan rope swings across the whole auditorium, all right? Okay? Well, the problem is we get up out of the, in the attic. We were in the attic. We didn't know where we were when we dropped the rope. So we come back down. The problem is if you're standing on the lip of the balcony, that rope is hanging like right there, Okay? So if you jumped off the balcony, all you're going to do is go, whoop, and that's it, right? Well, here's a bright idea I had, okay? All right? I'm like, dude, here's what we'll do, okay? All right? We'll put some slack in the rope. We'll go up to the top of the balcony. We'll come running down the steps, jump off the lip of the balcony. We jump off the lip of the balcony. The slack will drop. The slack will catch, and boom, we'll start swinging. He's like, awesome. Good idea. You go first, okay? All right? Sweet. I got ADD off the charts. I don't think. I just do, all right? So here's what I do, man. I put slack in the rope, go to the top of the balcony. I come running down that thing. I jump off the lip of that balcony. When I jumped off the lip of that balcony, you, y'all, I dropped like a sack of hammers, okay? All right? I mean, I am going down really, really fast, and those chairs are coming up. And I'm like, I got to stop going that way and start going that way, or this is going to hurt real bad, okay? All right? And the problem is I put way too much slack in the rope, okay? All right? So I'm really going down fast, man. And I'm thinking if this slack doesn't catch pretty quick, I'm in trouble, right? And finally the slack caught in the rope about that high above the chairs, okay? And I went down like a rock, just bam, dude. And y'all, it jacked me up, all right? I didn't break anything, but I looked like I'd been in a car wreck, okay? All right, I was on crutches for two weeks, all right? The only time I ever got a whipping on crutches in my life, principals like bend over, I'm like, how, okay? All right, it was crazy, man, I'm telling you. And the only reason we got caught is because I got hurt. And the only reason we did all that stupid stuff it's because nobody knew where we were. Nobody was watching us. 
And because nobody was watching us and nobody knew what we were doing, we could do whatever we wanted to do. Y'all listen, the same thing is true in our lives. Because when nobody knows what we're doing, when we're alone, you do whatever you want to do. If we have no accountability in our lives, over our secret lives and our secret time, we can do whatever we want. Because listen to me, write this down. Secrecy, secrecy is the power of badness. Secrecy is the power of badness. Because if nobody knows what you're doing when you're alone, you can do whatever you want to do. You got secrets, you can be as bad as you want to be when nobody's watching, nobody's looking. Listen to me, adults, students, listen to me. Our secret sins, the things we struggle with that nobody else knows about, the things we struggle with when we're alone, are the most devastating sins in our lives. Because when nobody knows what you're doing, we all have a tendency to go a little further than we intended to. When nobody's watching, we all have a little bit of a tendency to get a little bit more deeply involved. Listen to me. Look at my face, students especially. The further you go with sin, the deeper you mess around with sin, the more power that sin has to come back and jack up your life. And for most of us, our secret sins probably have something to do with our cell phones. We spend all our time right here. Teenagers, you got to think about what you're doing when you're alone with your phone. For most of us, probably, that's where our secret sin is hidden. Parents, if you teenagers have cell phones, and they've got complete 100% unfettered access to whatever's on the internet, whatever's out there, you need to get your act together. Your kids have an iPhone. I'm sure other brands have this. But the iPhone is a thing called screen time. I'm telling you, as a parent, that is your best friend. Screen time is your best friend. Adults, write this down. You can limit how much time they can spend on their phone, what apps they can and can't use, how much time they can spend on whatever app they're in. You can lock it all down. You can block every adult website that there is. I'm telling you, get that set up, adults. Get it set up. They don't need that much freedom on their phone. All right? All right, adults, all of us, we need some accountability there. My wife and I, we have the same passcode on our phones. Her passcode on her phone is the same as my passcode. Not because I need to check up on her. She needs to check up on me. We just don't have any secrets. There's nothing to hide. I would encourage every couple in this room, when you go home today, sync up your passcodes on your phone. If your husband or your wife is not comfortable doing that, that's a red flag. Get them synced up. Look, I could spend the rest of my time talking about every secret sin I could possibly come up with. I wouldn't be able to cover them all. And I'm not going to spend any more time on it, because here's the deal. I'm not your Holy Spirit. You know what your weaknesses are. Here you go. Everybody in the room, right now, I want you to think about the one sin in your life that constantly, consistently gets you off track. Think about it. There you go. Boom. That's the secret sin you need to work on. Got it? Everybody know what we're talking about? Got it? Nailed down? Got to work on it. Listen, the only way for any of us to have any freedom from our secret sins is to take away the secrecy you got to drag those secret sins into the light. you got to tell somebody what you're struggling with. As long as you got secrecy, guess what? you got the power to be bad. Take away the secrecy, power to be bad is gone. Every one of us needs someone we're accountable to. Everyone, I would encourage every, every guy in this room, every man in this room, you ought to have a brother in Christ that you walk beside every day 
is you've got a brother in Christ that has the passcode to your cell phone, that has, a, has a, a, the permission to hold you accountable, that knows what your secret sins are, and can hold you accountable to not give in to them. Women, you need the same thing. You need a good woman, a sister in Christ that you trust. Girls, you need a girlfriend, a friend that you trust, that has a passcode to your phone, that has, a, has the permission and the knowledge of what your secret sin is and the permission to hold you accountable. The problem is most of us don't have that kind of accountability. And I'm afraid we don't because most of us don't want that kind of accountability because we're afraid accountability will restrict us. We're afraid accountability will hinder us or hold us back or prevent us from having a good time. Look, man, I have all kinds of accountability in my life. I've shared with the students before, I don't know if you know this, but I was abused as a kid, led me down some roads with some ugly addictions in my life. Even as a believer, I struggled with addictions for a long time. Years ago, I got cleaned up and I got free from all that stuff. But because of that, because I'm an evangelist traveling alone, I got accountability in my life. I got two guys, Kenny and Kevin, I contact every single day of my life. Check in with them to see how I'm doing. Hold me accountable to live out what I believe. Every day I'm on the road, I'm in contact with one of those guys, making sure that I'm who I say I am when I'm out here on the road. Holding me accountable to know. They have the passcode to my cell phone. They know what I look at. They know what I see. They come accountable to those guys. I have that accountability because I don't want that junk in my life ever again. I don't want the secrecy there because when the secrecy's there, the temptation to be bad is too big. Listen, I have more accountability or as much accountability as anybody I know or have ever heard of. But listen to me. Look at my face and listen to me. I have more freedom. I have more freedom than I've ever had in my life because the secrecy has gone. And because the secrecy is gone, so is the power to be bad. And for us to experience the freedom that Jesus came to give us, the lesson we need to learn from the rebellion of the prodigal son is that secrecy is the power of badness. If you want to have that freedom, mark this down and nail it to the wall. Accountability does not restrict you. Accountability sets you free. Accountability sets you free, Galatians 5.1, to experience the freedom Jesus came to give you. And again, the lesson we need to learn from the rebellion of the prodigal son is that secrecy is the power of badness. Because he had secrecy in his life, and he gave him the freedom to be bad, and he lived it up, and he partied hard, and none of it, none of it, y'all, brought him any satisfaction. Which leads us to the next part of his story. And the next part of his story that we need to look at in order for you and I to be free from our lostness is the desperation of the son. The desperation of the son. Look at verse um, 14. It says this. After he had spent everything, blown all of his money, burned through hundreds of thousands of dollars. There was a severe famine in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him out to his fields to feed pigs. Look at the contrast, y'all. Look where this guy is now compared to where he was last time we saw him. Last time we saw this guy, this guy's living the dream, right? Out in the far-off country, got money to burn, man, living it up. And here this guy is on the bottom of the barrel, flat broke, living in a pig stable, which for a Jew at that time was one of the most disgusting things imaginable. This guy was so desperate, y'all. Verse 16 makes it clear that he was so desperate, he was jealous of the pigs. When it says he was so hungry, he wanted to eat what the pigs were eating. 
Verse 17 says he was basically starving to death. Now, y'all, his physical hunger in the story is just a metaphor for the spiritual hunger in his life. The same spiritual hunger he set out to satisfy through, through wild living in the far-off country, all right? Basically, all this guy had indulged himself in every sin and sinful pleasure the world had to offer. And none of it, y'all, none of it brought him any satisfaction. In fact, all it did was bring him brokenness, loneliness, and desperation, all right? And this guy, because this guy had learned the hard lesson that we all need to know, Ecclesiastes 6-7, that sin, sin never, ever, never satisfies. I like to water ski, especially when I was younger. We used to go water skiing a lot. My dad had a boat. We'd go to the lake. And uh, I don't know about any of you if you've been water skiing, but me, if I go water skiing, it doesn't matter if I water ski for an hour or for 20 minutes. When I come out of that water, I am starving to death. You know what I'm saying? i got to get some food in my mouth. It just makes me so ding-dang hungry, right? Well, one time we were going to go to the lake and go water skiing for a couple hours. My dad had weird rules about his boat. He had a lot of weird rules about a lot of stuff, but... The weird rules about his boat was the no food on the boat. Nothing, no food at all, right? So if you go water skiing, you're not going to eat till you come home. Well, this one time we were going to go to the lake, go water skiing. While we were going to water ski, my granddad was going to stay back at the house, cook steaks. So we go water skiing. We're in the water there for an hour or two, whatever, however long it is. We get done water skiing. As always, man, I'm so hungry, man. I'm gnawing on the ski rope. I mean, I'm hungry, all right? Get back to the house. As you can imagine, steaks are not ready. So, dude, I go straight to the pantry. I start grabbing every piece of junk food I could find and cramming it in my mouth. I'm eating Twinkies, Ding Dongs, potato chips, whatever. Every adult in the house is coming by and saying what? You know what they're saying, right? What are they saying? You're going to ruin your supper, right? Yep. Every adult's saying that. I'm like, leave me alone. I got it. Ah, whatever. Okay? Well, about the time supper's ready, guess what? Exactly. Y'all know this. You've seen this movie before. You won't admit it to your parents, but you know what I'm talking about, right? I'm not hungry. I'm stuffed. I'm so full I can't even drink a glass of tea. So I sit down, watch everybody else eat steaks, baked potatoes, the whole nine. By the time all the steaks are gone, baked potatoes are out, guess what? You know, you know this story. You know, you won't admit it, but you know. I'm hungry again. So guess what I do? Right back to the pantry, grab potato chips and Twinkies. Whatever. Because here's the deal. You know this. You don't want to admit it, but you know this. Junk food does not satisfy your hunger. All junk food does is give you a little temporary relief, which only serves to make you hungrier than you were when you started. Guess what? That's exactly what sin does. Because sin and spiritual junk food does not satisfy your spiritual hunger. All sin and spiritual junk food does is give you a little temporary relief, a little temporary escape that only serves to make you more spiritually hungry than you were in the first place. Because sin doesn't satisfy. And I think y'all are smart enough to know that. Even you teenagers, you know that. You know what it means for sin to satisfy? You know what the word satisfy means? It satisfies the need so you don't ever need to do that again. Let me ask you something, students, adults, everybody who struggles with sin, we all do. Has sin ever done that for you? Has whatever thing that you struggle with, whatever thing you've been into in your past, maybe into right now, has indulging in that ever satisfied that need to the point where you don't ever need to do that again? No, you know that. Sin doesn't satisfy. You know that. But you can know that all day long and nothing will change. 
you need to ask yourself this, especially those of y'all who really struggle with some hard stuff. Have any of the things you've given your life to, have any of the things that you've ever struggled with or messed around with, have any of those things ever, once, made your life any better? Probably not. And you can know that answer to that question. You can know it doesn't make your life better. You can know it doesn't satisfy and nothing can change. Here's a question you've got to answer. You want something to change. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is whatever cheap thrill you get out of whatever sinful thing is you wrestle with, is it worth the aftermath? Is it worth the baggage that comes with it? Is it worth it? Because as long as it's worth it, as long as the, the cheap thrill or whatever it is you get out of the sin you struggle with, as long as that cheap thrill is worth whatever comes with baggage that comes with it, then you're going to keep doing it. But when you get to the place where you know, this ain't worth it, man. That's how I got with my sins and my addictions that I used to struggle with. Got to the point where it's like, I don't, this stuff is jacking my life up. It doesn't satisfy. It's not worth it anymore. And when you get to the place where you can say, it ain't worth it. I don't want this in my life ever again. Then you can stop. And if it's just a habit you're wrestling with, you might can make a decision in your life and you can turn from it and get it right. You might just need to go talk to your pastor and get some advice and move forward. But if it's moved over to an addiction, you've got to take some other steps to get free. Nobody recovers from an addiction alone, ever. Because addictions, when you're alone, you know what that is? That's secrecy. You know what secrecy is? Power to be bad. Once you realize it ain't worth it, you decide, I want to be free, then you can get help, and then you can stop. And you can stop filling your life with the junk of this world that will never bring you any real or lasting satisfaction and start filling your life with the only thing that will. And y'all, the only thing in this life that will ever bring you or me any real or lasting satisfaction is Jesus. Because apart from Jesus, there is no hope. Apart from Jesus, there is no meaning. And apart from Jesus, y'all, there is not and there will never be any real or lasting satisfaction. And the lesson we need to learn from the desperation of the prodigal son is that sin never satisfies. He lived it up, he partied hard, didn't bring him satisfaction. In fact, it brought him right to the rock bottom of the barrel. Which leads us to the last and most exciting part of his story. And that part of his story that we need to look at in order for you and I to be free from our lostness is the, re- the return or the redemption of the Son. Look what it says. Verse 17. When he came to his senses. Y'all, this is the turning point in the whole passage. In the original language that's written, this, the, whole, the whole thing turns around on this, this phrase. When he came to his senses. What it essentially means is he woke up. What it really means is he realized he was lost. He'd been lost the whole time. He just didn't know it yet. He realized secrecy is the power of badness. He realized sin doesn't satisfy. He realized he was never going to find what he was looking for out there on his own. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my fathers hired me? And how many of the guys that work for my dad have food to spare? In other words, they got their needs met. And here I am starving to death. I will set out, and I will go back to my father. He realized he was never going to find the satisfaction he was looking for on his own. And he realized he needed to go home, and the only way he was going to find it was back home with his father. So he sat down and made a plan. Here's what his plan is. Look what it says. Verse, uh, 
18. I will set out and go back to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And he got up and he went home. His plan was real simple, all right? His plan was real simple. This guy was going to go home. He was going to find his father. He was going to confess and repent of his sin. And then he was going to try to work his way back into earning his father's acceptance. So then Jesus very simply says, and I love the way he says it, and I'll talk about it more in a minute. He says he got up, he got up, and he went home. And he was a long ways off. Jesus says, the father was standing at the gate and he saw him coming. And it wasn't like the father just happened to be out there checking the mail that day. That dad had been going to that gate every day since the son left, looking, hoping, praying, begging God for his son to come back home. And when he saw his son out in the distance, y'all, he dropped everything and he took off running, which for a man of his stature and wealth in that culture was something that no one would do. He dropped it all and he took off running out from the gate to meet his son. And when he got to his son, he embraced him, he hugged him, and he looked back at his son. When he looked him in the face, the son looked at his father and he said, Father, Dad, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against God, and I've sinned against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But y'all listen to me. Before he got to the part about working to try to earn back his father's acceptance, the father cut him off, y'all. He interrupted him. Because once the son had confessed and repented of his sin, there was nothing left to be said. Y'all, there was nothing left to be done. Because y'all listen to me, God does not make us work to earn his acceptance. He gives it to us as a gift. Because we are not saved, Ephesians 2.9, by our good works. We are saved by the grace of God. And y'all, the grace of God is God giving us something that we don't deserve. And y'all, what God gives us that we don't deserve when we come back home to the Father is the absolute acceptance, forgiveness, and restoration, John 1.12, to our rightful place as children of God. And y'all, it's beautiful. A picture of the gospel, the story of what God has done for us through Jesus. As beautiful a picture of the gospel as the prodigal son is. Y'all, it's not a complete picture of the gospel. It's not a complete picture of the gospel. Because what makes it possible for you and me to come home to the Father is the simple fact that Jesus went to the cross. And Jesus went to the cross, y'all, to pay for our sin. Because apart from the cross, Hebrews 9.22, there's no forgiveness of sin. Apart from the cross, there's no acceptance by the Father. And apart from the cross, there's no possibility of you or me or anybody else ever coming back home. But Jesus went to the cross to save us. He went to the cross to die in our place, to take our penalty, to pay for our sins so that you and I could be saved, be born again, come to spiritual life. Jesus went to the cross. He bore our sin. He took our penalty, died in our place so that you and me could just come home. Y'all, the prodigal son is my favorite story in the whole Bible. Because it's my story. 
I've been the prodigal who was lost, not saved. Always thinking I had to clean my life. I got to get my life cleaned up and then maybe I can come to God. I've been the prodigal as a believer, born again, saved believer, minister of the gospel, trapped and wrapped up in an addiction so deeply in secrecy that it, was, it was almost killed me. Feeling so dirty and so awful that I thought I could never come back home. I need to clean my life up and get my act together so I could come home. But I also know what it's like to see the Father come running out from the gate to welcome me home. And my favorite part of the story is when he goes home. And I love how Jesus says it, man. And I don't think it was on accident. Because all he says, all he says is he got up and he went home. That's it. He doesn't say he cleaned his life up and then he went home. It doesn't say he got rid of all his addictions and all of his struggles and all of his simple habits and all of his secrecy, and then he went home. Y'all, it doesn't say he did anything other than just go home. So you thinking about coming home this morning? Whether coming home for you means getting saved or coming home for you means you're saved, but you've got some struggles in your life and you need to get free. You thinking about coming home this morning? You don't need to get your act together. You don't need to clean up your life before you come home. That's not your job. That's God's job. You couldn't do it anyway. God's job is to clean you up. God's job is to get you healed. God's job is to get you accountability and get you to freedom. That's God's job. You know what your job is? Just come home. That's it. So you think about coming home this morning? Doesn't matter how bad you've been. Doesn't matter how deeply involved you might be. Doesn't matter how much secrecy you have. I promise you. The Father, God the Father, is standing at the gate this morning, waiting on you to just come home. Come on home, y'all. Come on home. I want you all to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a minute. God, I pray in the next few minutes that you would do supernatural things in this place. I pray for those in this place, God, that have never been saved. I pray that today would be the day that they come home to you for the very first time, trust in you, begin a relationship with you. I pray for Christians in this room, born again, saved believers that are struggling with some sin that's got a hold on them and they want to be free. I pray that this morning would be a time that they get up from that far off country and they come home. And you meet them and welcome them back, God, and we can make some plans together to move forward. I pray, God, for this morning to be a homecoming.